well-beloved listeners, for almost the entirety of human history, cultures around the world have passed down stories of terrifying female monsters. We're familiar with figures like Medusa, the uh, snakehead seductress, or the famous fishtail mermaids luring sailors to their doom. But uh, if we go back much further in time, some 4,000 years, the original female demons were less interested in seducing men. Instead, they were a big part of women's folklore, helping women come to terms with the, the perils of pregnancy, childbirth, motherhood. Sarah Clegg is an historian and the author of a new book all about female monsters. It's called Woman's Law, that's L-O-R-E, 4,000 Years of Sirens, Serpents and Succubi. And it's published by the wonderfully entitled Head of Zeus. And Sarah joins the Little Wilders program from London. Sarah, let's begin in ancient Mesopotamia, which you know very well because you're a PhD. Please introduce me to uh, Lamashtu, you're, uh, who you describe as the mother of all demons. Yes, she's very much the matriarch of this kind of demonic family that goes all the way down through history. So she is an absolutely horrifying monster. She has the head of a dog or a lion, uh, the wings of an eagle, her feet are the talons of a bird. She has these enormously horrifyingly long fingers that she uses both to grab onto babies and sicken them, but also to reach up inside women and drag out babies before their term. She's usually depicted sort of bare-breasted, suckling um, uh, dogs at her teats. She is this absolute nightmare monster, and we have so many incantations against her as well. Um, there's an enormous sort of 600-line compilation of all the incantations that we find in the library of Ashurbanipal in about 600 BC. Um, but there's also incantations that date right back to about 1,800 BC. Um, and a whole load of terrifying amulets as well. The, these immense fingernails or claws she used to strangle babies in the womb. And uh, we should point out to the listener that pregnancy and childbirth was absolutely terrifying in ancient times, wasn't it? It was indeed. I mean, the death toll alone was terrifying. So about 8% of women um, would die in childbirth. That doesn't even take into account how, tra how traumatic and painful the experience would have been and the fact that it likely left women with uh, life-changing injuries. I mean, that's a danger of pregnancy and childbirth. Even now, it was much worse prior to modern medicine. And you point and out that about a third of, uh, of kids would die before adulthood. Yes, and that's the other side of it, um, that most women... Women are the child carers in basically every case, and they are the ones who are, who are looking after their children and who, in a terrifying number of cases, are the ones watching as their children die. Um, as you say, it's a third of children don't make it to the age of 10. There's a lot of really, really heartbreaking stuff around people's losses of children and how devastated they were. How did, uh, how did women, how did people attempt to ward off this uh, horrific woman 
Um, so there were a lot of ways you can do it. You can uh, strap amulets around your neck. And we have quite a lot of these amulets um, made of clay with um, engravings of Lamashtu on them and occasionally writing on the other side, um, repeating incantations or just pseudo writing. So a collection of signs made to look like writing to kind of give you the feeling of an incantation that can drive her off. You can uh, paint incredible things on the wall of the bedchamber where the patient is. You can bury little clay dogs under the door. Fascinatingly, we actually have little clay dogs buried under the door in Neo-Assyrian palaces. So we assume they're from similar apotropaic rituals. Let's travel forward in time to ancient Greece and uh, introduce us to our next female monster, Lamia. So Lamia is the ancient Greek and ancient Roman descendant of Lamashtu. Um, she is, in many ways, extremely similar to Lamashtu. She is heavily connected with snakes. In fact, she's often given the tail of a snake or has a snake coming out of her forehead. She murders babies. She murders pregnant women. She'll often devour babies whole. She is given a backstory in ancient Greece, though, which says that she was once a beautiful queen, seduced and or raped by Zeus and forced by an envious hero to eat her own children. And then what she does after that is driven by kind of grief and guilt and also a furious jealousy that other women have, what she can't. And she becomes this serpentine monster that will eat your children and murder you if you're trying to have them. But then there is this other side to Lamia as well, which is that she's quite sexy. Um, she doesn't just care about eating babies and murdering mothers, she also will try and seduce men. Um, normally she does this by concealing her serpentine nature. Either she'll put on a disguise, um, sort of a kind of glamour, she'll make herself magically appear to be a beautiful woman, or there's one story in which she sits bare-breasted by a channel, which the sea, which you can sail into but can't sail out again, and she'll lure shipwreck sailors to her. Um, by having her serpentine lower half buried in the sand um, and she'll beckon sailors in and she'll be bare-breasted and as soon as they arrive close then she'll eat them alive. So she's a precursor to the mermaid we'll be discussing. She is, she is. So we often think of mermaids as coming from sirens in ancient Greece, sort of the um, monsters who tried to sing Odysseus into a shipwreck. Um, and the thing about sirens is they're not sexy. At least they're not sexy in ancient Greek mythology. The thing, when they, they sing to lure Odysseus to them, it's not a song that is seductive. It's a song about how they'll give him knowledge about everything that's happened in the world and everything that will happen. They're, they're kind of prophetic monsters. There's never anything sexual about them. And they're also not snake-tailed or fish-tailed. They are half woman, half bird. And what you get in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages is a combining of the sirens and the lamia. So a combining of this kind of singer who sing in Odysseus and also this snake tail bare breasted monster who'll eat you alive if she gets her hands on you. Now, we're, and, going, to, we're going to come back to mermaids in, in due course. But I'm fascinated that there's also... There are depictions of this woman, woman with male appendages. Yes, only only one, I should say. Um, and it's not definite that it is Lamia. 
With Lamia, in a way you don't have with Lamashtu, you get this idea of kind of an enforcing of proper womanhood, that if you aren't behaving as you ought to be as a woman, then you're demonised. Um, women are supposed to be chaste. Lamia is absolutely not chaste. Women are supposed to wait for men to come to them rather than the other way around. That is not how Lamia plays it at all. Women. So she's the epitome of, of the fallen woman. Yes, um, the epitome certainly of all the kind of negative ideas about what women shouldn't be. That's Lamia. And it comes with this sort of, if you don't behave as you ought to, you are a demon, you are a monster, you belong on the outside of the world, not in civilized society. And as part of that, there is this depiction of her where it looks as though she has a phallus. And it seems to be emphasizing this idea of, if you can't live up to the Greek ideal of womanhood, then we will portray you as having male genitalia. I should say as well, hermaphroditism is not viewed as something negative in ancient Greece. There are stunning depictions of it. Um, so it's not as sort of black and white as we might want to make it. But there is a suggestion nonetheless. Sarah is an historian and author of Woman's Law, 4,000 Years of Sirens, Cirque, Serpents and Succubi. Now, time to talk about Lilith, because she has an enormous role to play in your saga. Yes, she does. So if I can just pull everyone right back to ancient Mesopotamia. In ancient Mesopotamia, as well as Lamashtu, we have another demoness called Lilithu. Lilithu is the ghost of a girl who died before she could have sex. What Lilithu wants is to have in death what she couldn't have in life. So she seeks out mortal men and enacts her passions and is held responsible for wet dreams. She's quite a, feels a bit harsh, but she's quite a pathetic demoness. Um, you read the incantations against her and you just feel sorry for her. Kind of a long list of all the things she's never done, that she's never had a husband, she's never had a child, she's never gone to festivals. She's never, I mean, my favourite quotation, she's never had a nice young lad loosen her garment clasp, which, you know, isn't that what we all want? But at a certain point, she starts to blend together with Lamashtu. And by kind of the end of the first millennium, you start to see, first of all, Lilithu and Lamashtu are quite often used synonymously. Um, and Lilithu starts to take on this child and mother murdering aspect of Lamashtu. Um, she starts killing children. Um, well, how can so she by... possibly, how can she possibly segue into uh, the first wife of Adam? Well, so she turns up in late antiquity as this kind of monster who will kill children and will also steal semen to try and impregnate herself with the have more children, kind of an extension of this Lolita idea of trying to have in life what she couldn't have in death. And I mean, it's very complicated and strange how she ends up the first wife of Adam. We don't have as many sources on it as we would like, but we know that there is a tradition where after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they have a period where they're apart. And supposedly, Adam then ends up fathering a race of demons. And it's kind of used as a way, reasoning for why there are demons in the world. 
And obviously, if there is already in pre-existing folklore a demoness who will go around and steal semen to make her own babies, seems like she could fit in there quite easily as well. So that's how she sort of ends up being paired off with Adam. There is also, in Genesis, there is a blending of two accounts for how women were created. One account says that um, God created man and woman, just at the same time, done. And then there is the other account that we're all fairly familiar with, where God makes Eve from Adam's rib. Now, as I say, it's likely that this is a case of um, the book of Genesis. In fact, a lot of the early books of the Bible are being sort of mushed together from a whole load of different accounts. Um, So you're just getting the same story told twice in two different ways. But that's obviously not really an interpretation of the Bible that's that's open to you when you're supposed to be believing in it wholeheartedly. You can't say it's a whole load of different accounts. So instead, there's this idea that maybe Adam had a wife before Eve, a wife who was created at the same time as him. And if Lilith is going to be having sex with Adam after the events of the garden, perhaps she was there before as well. And then that would make sense for why she ends up being removed from the scene before Eve appears, because obviously a demonic monster, not a suitable wife for the first man. Now, we've been in ancient Mesopotamia, and let's now leap forward to the time of Michelangelo. I have oft gazed upwards at the the Sistine ceiling in Rome, but I have never noticed that Lilith is there, half snake, half woman. Yes. So she, Michelangelo depicts her as the one handing the fruit over to Eve as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Um, She's depicted as like a twin of Adam. So she's, I mean, Michelangelo, genius that he was, never paints women that well. So she already looks quite masculine. Um, But mainly it's her hair that is exactly the same colour as Adam's, whereas Eve is kind of a brunette and doesn't look very much like either of them. Which is, again, tying it to this idea that she was there first, that she was the one who was created as a pair. Um, There are, becoming the snake in the garden is really interesting because there are, The snake is such an odd insertion into the legend of the fall. It ends up feeling like a kind of just so story about why the snakes slither on the ground that is just sort of thrown in to what feels like a very important situation. We don't get any information on kind of the snake's motivations. Why does the snake want Eve to eat the apple? It's not explained at all. And later traditions kept on kind of trying to fill that in. So in some cases, then the snake is viewed as uh, Satan trying to get his revenge on God. And in other cases, the snake is thought of as Lilith, sort of a scorned first wife who's been thrown out the garden for refusing to submit to Adam, who nevertheless is looking to get even with him. And so tempts Eve. At times like this, I thank God I'm an atheist. I'm talking to Sarah (laughs) Clegg, historian and author of uh, woman's law, 4,000 years of sirens, serpents and succubi. Okay, let's go back to, uh, let's go back to mermaids and their strange evolution. Tell me about that. Yeah, so as I say, they really form in late antiquity when the myth of the sirens um, merges into the myths of Lamia. 
um, leaving you with this kind of snake-tailed seductress who will sing as the sirens do, but who, if she manages to lure in sailors to her, will do so with seduction rather than the promise of knowledge and will eat you alive if she gets her hands on you. And these monsters are so prevalent in, I mean, they, they form in late antiquity, but they really reach center stage for the Christian church during um, the early Middle Ages. And it was at this time that the early, the church of the early Middle Ages was really pushing kind of chastity as enormously important for men. I mean, chastity is always important for women. You have to live chaste if you're a woman or you don't get to be sort of a person at all. But suddenly it becomes very important for men if they want to be more important, if they want to be better than everyone else. In fact, there's a there's stories of sort of men advancing in the church because they're chaste rather than because of anything else or because they're virgins. Um, there's an idea that you can't touch a holy relic if you had a wet dream the night before if you're a man. Also an idea you shouldn't marry, you shouldn't have sex with women. Women are temptresses that they're trying to lure you into sort of, you know, away from the path with God. We should all be living chaste and ignoring women. Sarah, how did we get from this to uh, Disney's delightful uh, Little Mermaid? I mean, so pretty much mermaids become sympathetic, quite lovely creatures as soon as they slip out of church, out of the church. You've got churchmen kind of throwing themselves into bramble bushes to try and forget about a woman they once remembered and expurge themselves of all the urges that remembering a woman might bring on. That's not what most people in medieval society are doing. To be honest, that's not even what a bulk of churchmen are doing. And you get these sort of beautiful ideas of the mermaid in secular literature. There's one thing where mermaids are said to weep when it's uh, sunny because they're remembering that soon there'll be storms. And they, they smile and they sing when there are storms because they're remembering times when it's sunny. And that fits right into a poetic tradition where there's an idea that that's what lovers should be doing, or they're doing it in a way that's sympathetic towards lovers. It's a hell of a um, change from all the misogyny we've been describing. It really is. It's lovely. Um, and she also fits into kind of the, the more sort of fairy traditions where... Um, sort of mystical creatures, they're not necessarily bad or good, they're just existing and they maybe have power in different ways. And one of my favourite stories is, is the story of Melusine. Do you think we have time for the story of Melusine? Absolutely. Fantastic. She's my favourite. Um, so the story of Melusine is, I mean, it's told in lots of different contexts, but fundamentally, a nobleman finds a beautiful woman in the woods falls in love with her, proposes marriage, and she accepts on the condition that he will never be able to see her either on a Saturday or a Sunday or while she's in the bath. One of those. <laughs> um, they get married and she brings him enormous health, happiness and prosperity. They have children. She builds palaces with magic. She builds monasteries. You know, she's a she's a pious wife as well as sort of a powerful one. There's no suggestion there's any conflict with the church. Um, and then one day he finally lets his curiosity get the better of him and he spies on her. On, in the bath or on a Saturday or on a Sunday, depending on the story, and finds out that actually she is a mermaid. She has the tail of a snake or a serpent, and she is called a mermaid in quite a lot of the traditions as well. And joyously, as opposed to this being, he's found out her horrible secret. Instead, he instantly repents. Um, you know, she says, well, 
you've broken your promise to me. I'll be leaving now. And he mourns her. He says he should never have broken his promise. He He's racked with horrible guilt. Uh, I mean, she returns occasionally to look after her children, but never comes back to him. And that is very much part of kind of the European tradition of fairies, of mortal marriages that are happy, but you will inevitably break the promise you made to them. And here's Starbucks daring to steal this wonderful creature for their logo. And I understand that mermaids became an important symbol for the queer community. Yes. So, I mean, actually, this happened sort of surprisingly early. So the the story of The Little Mermaid, written by Hans Christian Andersen. Hans Christian Andersen was queer himself. He was desperately in love with another man. And this other man said he couldn't return his affections. And the story of The Little Mermaid, as as written by Hans Christian Andersen, bears only a passing resemblance to the Disney story and is instead this tale of painful, unrequited love. It's not really a situation in which you might want to be the mermaid. And it's certainly a situation which shows enormous kind of compassion for someone who's loving someone else. And that love is just never returned. That other person isn't even considering returning that love. Sarah, you've shown us time and time again the the blokes have hijacked these monster stories from women's folklore for their own ends. But in the last 50 to 100 years, women have fought back, haven't they? They have. I mean, really, the problem is, if you set up a monster so that she breaks all the barriers of, like, traditional womanhood, um, you really have given people a figurehead if they want to break all the barriers of traditional womanhood. If you've got a monster who's monstrous because she refuses to submit to men and refuses to have children and wants to have sex because she'd like to have sex and not because she feels obliged to have sex with a man, what you've done is created quite an inspirational figure if you want to look at it that way. From sort of second wave feminism on is when it really kicks in, is when women start seeing these monsters as something to be admired, as sort of figureheads of the movement, rather than sort of a horrible lesson that you'll be demonized if you dare not to have children or express sexual interest in something. So the most famous story that we have about Lilith is that she is thrown out of the Garden of Eden because she refuses to submit to Adam. And if you want to look at it as an inspirational tale, as a woman who won't submit and decides, no, I'm equal to man. I mean, that's what she says. She says, we are both made from the same clay. I am equal to you. And she's right. Within the logic of the story, she is correct. And that is incredible. That is such a fun story. If if you want to read it as an inspiring tale of a woman who knows her own equality, knows her own worth, and refuses to submit to a man because of that, it's fantastic. And in the 1970s, a woman called Judith Plaskow writes a midrash where she recasts this story as entirely inspirational, as one where Lilith and Eve team up and take on God and Adam together because (laughs) neither one of them are happy with the situation as it stands. It is an absolutely beautiful work. 
As you can hear, beloved listeners, Sarah has a wonderful way with words, both on our Little Wireless program and also in her book. Sarah Clegg, historian from Cambridge and the author of Women's Law, 4,000 Years of Serpents, Sirens and Succubi. Sarah, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.